Hello and welcome to the Teaching with Class podcast, the podcast that gives you quick, actionable tips to easily implement in your classroom. I'm your host, Monica Pujol-Nasif. In today's episode, we're talking about how to deal with very strong-willed children. In today's episodes, we are joined by Megan Rosten. She is our very own online course facilitation manager here at Teachton. Megan, welcome. Super happy, super grateful that you're giving us your time and talking to us about this important topic requested by one of our readers of the class learning community and listener of the podcast. But tell us a little bit about you before we start, please. Well, hello, Monica. Thanks for inviting me. I'm also really excited to talk about this topic. I'm really happy that someone brought it up in the learning community. We strive. We are just so happy that when teachers, because this podcast is for our teachers, when they need something and we have a person like you who say, oh, I can do that. I can give you strategies to help you uh, even when it's not easy. So that's why we're super, super grateful that you are taking your time to do this with us. So let's start with defining what is a strong-willed child? Such a great question. What is a strong-willed child? What does that look like? When I hear people say they they have a strong-willed child or they're working with a strong-willed child, it makes me wonder a couple of things. First of all, what does that look like, right? When you say you have a strong-willed child, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Because that term has become kind of a catch-all umbrella phrase that adults and caregivers use to describe some typical or even developmentally appropriate behaviors that you might see. So for example, if you're talking about toddlers, there's a lot of behaviors toddlers are kind of well-known for. One of them is, is defiance, right? So you might think of a toddler as a strong-willed child because they are exhibiting defiant behaviors, those are developmentally appropriate. Not to say they aren't challenging, but they are typical behaviors of a child that age. The other thing we might be talking about, though, when we are describing strong-willed children is temperament. And that is different than sort of the natural developmentally appropriate behaviors you might see in a child. Temperament. Let's talk a little bit about that. Because we can think of temperament and character. Can you explain a little bit what you mean? Absolutely. So very broadly, temperament is, it is in some ways similar to what we might call personality or character, but temperament is more stable over a person's lifetime. And it is a natural biological predisposition that people have at birth. So when we talk about personality or personality traits, those can change over a person's lifetime with growth or experiences. So you might see a very extroverted person who experiences situations that might cause them to become more withdrawn and vice versa right? Those traits have changed because of a person's experiences. Temperament, though, tends to remain consistent over time. And when you talk about that, I immediately go to the classroom 
of infants because I can see an infant that has a harder time being comforted or an infant that has a harder time adapting from home to the new classroom versus infants that come and they're easygoing and they can adapt easily to different people even in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So that's the beginning, but it grows over time. So how does that change over time, temperament? So temperament itself definitely tends to stay stable over time. So in infancy, when we see, you know, babies who are maybe the ones who have a harder time calming down, later on, those might be the older preschoolers who, again, need a little bit more help from an adult reaching a regulated state once they've become upset. But definitely the way we think about temperament, our perception of temperament in children has evolved over time a great deal. So for example, we used to sort of categorize temperament in three very basic ways. It was easy, difficult, slow to warm. The difficult children are the ones, like you were saying, have a harder time with disruption in their routine. They definitely thrive in a very consistent schedule. They might have a harder time returning to a regulated state. The easy, what we used to call easy children, are the ones who are very adaptable. They're the babies that can go with the flow or the children that can, they don't get upset if there's a change in their routine. They're adaptable. And then what we used to refer to as slow to warm, those are the children who will not necessarily engage in their environment right away. They're the ones who may stand off, observe for a bit, and they may need some support or they may need some sort of coaxing to engage. Once they have established that comfort level, then they may start engaging with their environment or with new people, but they, they need some time to establish that security first. So we don't necessarily use those terms to describe temperament. Like I said, that sort of the, the way we talk about temperament has evolved quite a bit. So when we're talking about temperament now, instead of difficult, you might hear the term feisty. Or instead of slow to the warm, you might hear some folks say cautious. This is a very, this child is cautious. Or observer, right? This child is an observer. And uh, yeah, instead of easy, we use terms like flexible or adaptable. So I hope your listeners are, are wondering, like, what does this have to do with strong-willed children? We're talking about strong-willed children. Those must be the difficult children. Not the case, though. I would say one trait, whether we're talking about toddlers who are displaying developmentally appropriate behaviors that are just part of their natural progression, or we're talking about temperament, one characteristic that they share is flexibility versus rigidity, which is a temperament trait. But strong-willed children, if we're using that term, tend to be lower on flexibility or have a harder time with flexibility and are higher when it comes to rigidity. You mentioned the teachers and... I can just see them thinking of your own children in your classrooms. So like everything else, right? 
we are learning temperament is innate. We don't learn it. We are born with it. Yes, we can learn strategies, but let's think of, well, it can't be necessarily a bad thing if we're born with it. Oh, so can you tell us about that? How do we understand this from children? What are the things that they are good at and that we can use to teach them the other skills? Yes. So a strong will, having a strong will is not necessarily a bad thing. I would argue that in adults, that is a trait we really admire. Someone who can speak up for themselves or others, someone who, you know, exhibits incredible perseverance. These are the children who are exhibiting these behaviors may end up, because this is an innate predisposition and it will follow them, these may be the adolescents who have a very strong sense of right and wrong. They may grow into the adults who have a strong sense of justice. So there are things that we like in adults that don't always look good on young children. They may not look good on the five and under crowd, but they are, they are traits we really admire in adults. You just made me think of when a child says, but why? But tell me more. Like, I am not happy with that answer. You have to tell me more. What a great skill. Right. And that makes me think also, there's a big difference between a child who is cooperative and one who is compliant. So you may think that this child is exhibiting really frustrating behaviors, like saying, no, I don't want to do that. Or why? Why do you want me to do this task? Why do I have to do it this way? Why can't I do it this way? There's a big difference between cooperation and compliance. So a child who can be cooperative may not necessarily agree with the way a situation has turned out, but will cooperate for the greater good. So if you think about cleanup, right, cleanup time, the teacher may say, okay, it's almost time to go outside. We're going to clean up the paint. A strong-willed child may think, but I'm not done right? I'm not finished with my project. I'm not done with my work. I don't want to clean up. Why do I have to clean up if I'm not done? But a cooperative child will still understand, okay, the sooner I clean up, the sooner we all get to go outside. I'm not happy that I have to stop my work, but I will. I can be cooperative, right? Versus compliance, that has more to do with sort of following a set of rules or conditions without question, without thinking. And that compliance looks, that looks very different than cooperation. And I would venture that compliance actually, that is not necessarily something we want to encourage, right? That can come with its own set of difficulties that can come with safety concerns, right? Someone who just follows an adult has said this, I do not question it. Thank you, Megan. You just made me think, as you were talking, you brought me back. When I transitioned from Florida to Arizona, I substituted for Head Start. And I ended up staying for the rest of the year with this group because I couldn't leave them. Like once they're mine, they're mine. Anyways, there was this child and 
she, he loved const making constructions. I learned this on day one. I didn't know I was going to stay, but day one, he did it. Day two, he did it. Day three, now I intervened. Um, he didn't want to clean up. So it was a head start program in the morning. I did that one. And then there was another teacher in the afternoon, same classroom. So obviously we have to be considered and leave the classroom neat so the other group will come and use it. He had such a hard time cleaning up his structures. They were so, I've never seen a child building the way that he built. And I was able to implement concept development in creating the planning and the produce. It was amazing. But he had this problem. He did not want to clean up. It was so hard for him. So I remember coming up with, okay, we have three choices. We could clean up with the friends because, and he knows, so we could uh, move out and the friends in the afternoon would have a clean classroom. We could take pictures and then clean up and we could show the pictures to mom because that was his issue. He wanted to, mom to see. And the third one was, okay, we're going to leave it. And when mom comes, she can look at the structure with you and then you guys can clean up together. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to go through that process and for him to accept but he had a lot of good reasons why he didn't want to turn that down. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of time. It was a lot of inspiration. And he wanted mom to see. Right. So that could have been confused with, well, it's time to clean up and you have to clean up, period. Rather than, let, let's talk about this. Why is it important? And yes, exactly how you said he understood the importance of it. Not very happy about it, but... And eventually, we didn't need to do that pictures anymore waiting for mom. Eventually, he just did it. That's such a good point, Monica. It makes me think about when we're talking about very young children, we know that behavior is communication. And that with that behavior, that means these children are trying to tell us something that they cannot express verbally. So... Also, when we're talking about very young children, we're talking about humans who still don't have the skill of self-regulation mastered, right? So in this example, I'm hearing you, one, help this child, sort of coaching them through these big emotions that he was having, but then also trying to sort of translate, what does this behavior mean? What is really going on? What is this child trying to tell me? He wasn't just trying to push your buttons. He wasn't trying to be disrespectful. This child wasn't trying to just be defiant. I don't want to clean up for the sake of I don't want to clean up. He had a real reason that was important to him. And by speaking with him and sort of using, by you being flexible and talking with him, you were able to translate what does this behavior mean? What does this child really want to tell me? Flexibility. Thank you for mentioning that. And so if we can start closing by highlighting two or three key strategies that teachers can implement. And if you don't mind, let's start with flexibility. And why not? If you have a child that has this natural tendency toward rigidity or has a hard time being flexible. The goal is not to break their will or crush their spirit, right? 
the goal is to cultivate this cooperation and cultivate flexibility despite this natural tendency. This natural tendency, if we're talking temperament, again, this is in them. This is their biological predisposition. So that temperament is always going to be there. The goal is to cultivate it in a positive way. So either way, right? If we're talking about natural developmental progression or we're talking about temperament, like, okay, but what do I do, right? How do I do this in the classroom? What does this look like? So I would say one of the best ways is to practice these skills, practice flexibility or cooperation the best time to do that is not during a time of crisis. So if a child has already reached an unregulated state, that's not going to be a good time to practice being flexible. That's, that's not going to work. But if you can find opportunities throughout the day or in your routine where you can practice these skills, you can practice being flexible. Absolutely. When everybody is calm, everybody, including yourself as the adult, everyone is a calm, regulated state, right? Because that is another key component of working with children is making sure you are self-regulated as well. I will give you an example, my own personal example. I am the parent of what many people would call a strong-willed child. Earlier today, she came to me saying she wanted to make slime. She's big on slime right now. It wasn't a good time in our day for making slime. But I was able to say, you know, it's not a good time for slime right now. What if we look at the recipe and we can write it down and we can look at it together after, you know, such and such has happened? That she wasn't happy. She didn't comply with my request, but she could be flexible and she could handle that minor disappointment, right? And move forward and say, okay, yes, this other plan of yours, which is second best to be sure, but we will move forward with your plan. That's fine. So I even said, okay, thank you. Thank you for being flexible. I really appreciate it. So I think using that language is also important, using the terms, that sort of emotional intelligence and giving that emotional literacy. But I think practicing during times where everybody, everyone's emotions aren't high already. So things like dramatic play or, you know, you can plan to sort of, you can plan spontaneous opportunities, right? If you know this is something you want to practice. We do this already with other skills. When a child, when a, you know, a young toddler is learning to walk, we find opportunities, we create opportunities where a child can practice those skills. You might put a toy just outside their reach or you hold your arms out and you know coax them closer. You can do the same thing. You can find opportunities or create opportunities for children to practice coming up with a solution, an alternative, being flexible. Another great way is because these children are the ones who will persevere, these are the kids who exhibit some leadership qualities, give them a job. Give them a job where they can practice 
that leadership in an environment that, you know, it, it's okay. It's so in this situation, it is okay for you to, you know, exhibit these behaviors. I love how you keep bringing this to the future. It's a trait. We just learn to live with one another and in this case, give the children the tools to be able to learn to self-regulate and say, okay, I get it. It's going to be hard. And I love how you said that. It's the second best thing, but I'll do it for now. <laughs> Can you refer a little bit, thinking of teachers who have shared how maybe they spit on them or they hit them. And I have heard this mostly post-pandemic. So as teachers, it's okay to set boundaries, right? Setting boundaries doesn't mean that we don't understand children, but also the teachers need to have that safe space. Could you sure. talk a little bit to that, please? Yes. So I will take a big step back and I want to just acknowledge that just because you've chosen to do something voluntarily does not mean it's easy. So as a teacher, you, you've chosen this profession. You love working with children. You love seeing their growth. You might love the light bulb moments, right? That doesn't mean every day is going to be easy. There are going to be hard days and it's okay to acknowledge that. But you mentioned boundaries and those are really important in a classroom, setting boundaries with you and the children, but also the children are allowed to have their boundaries as well. Those are important. That is also, I think, a really great skill to cultivate in young children is setting boundaries. But when we're talking about boundaries with teachers and interactions, we're talking about interactions between teachers and children, boundaries are still a good thing. And if something is not okay, then it's not okay. I think we would probably all agree, right? Hitting, harming others is not okay. Whether it is a child hitting the teacher or a child hitting another child. Those are things that are just not okay. And those would definitely fall under the category of what we would call challenging behaviors. Those are behaviors that are interfering with the safety or learning of the child or the children around them. So it makes me think about behavior guidance. It makes me want to put on my class goggles and, and think about behavior guidance. The whole idea behind behavior guidance, right, is that it is a process where teachers and caregivers help children learn to identify and use appropriate behavior. So if you have a child who is, you know, hitting or biting, setting that boundary, setting that expectation and following up on it is really important. So it is okay for a teacher to say, I cannot let you hit, you know, your friend. I cannot let you hit me. That hurts. You know, we, we've all heard sort of that script, right? But setting boundaries and having behavior expectations, those are things we all want in our, in our classroom and in our environments. But the approach you take may look different depending on the child you're talking to or working with. Thank you, Megan. That approach, and this is real to a teacher who said she got in trouble, so she was telling me, but the child hit her 
and she screamed at the child and sent him away. Mm-hmm. Another child hit another teacher in the same place and the teacher handled it in a different way. So it's a conversation, that feedback of, I understand why you yelled and you sent him away, but what's the message there? It's like, get out of my face. I can see you right now, which is really hurting the child who was already trying to tell you something that was in his heart or her heart or her mind. Versus that hurt, I need to separate myself. I'm going to go drink some water. I'm going to go for a walk and I'll be right back because that really hurt. Mm-hmm. So normalizing those moments are so important for children to see that you teachers might have a hard time when you can hurt. It's not fun. But you said it and you didn't yell. Instead, you said, I need to do this one thing that makes me feel better and I'll be right back. Because as you said, it's, it's just, we obviously we have all been in the classroom. It's not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not pleasant to be hurt in any way. So would you say that's another key strategy to normalize those strong feelings you teach us yourself feel by saying it and practicing your own self-regulation? I would say that is the first step in a strategy, right? That is the first step is even if it means, right, well, like we were just saying, even when you're talking about children, right, the the key is, you know, not addressing it when emotions are high. During a time of crisis, when one or both parties are upset, it's not going to be effective, right? And it, again, it can be difficult to do in the moment. Your sort of initial gut reaction may be shock, right? Like, I can't believe you just hit me. I can't believe you did that. What's wrong with you? Like, right? That may be the initial sort of knee-jerk reaction. But yes, I would say the first step is our own emotional regulation, getting our big emotions in check before we start trying to teach other, you know, young children We expect them to be self-regulated. We expect them to have it nailed by the time they start kindergarten. We expect them to be able to self-regulate on their own when we ourselves aren't always, you know, aces at it. Because going back to temperament that you so on point defined, we adults also have our temperament. Absolutely. So when we're both feisty, that's going to be a clash. And right. nothing good is going to come out of that. Right. So you, when we talk about temperament, the, you know, at first glance, it may seem like a match in temperament is going to be a great match, that that means there's going to be such a great fit for a teacher and a child if they have similar temperaments. That might be the case if they're both very adaptable, maybe but that can create some conflict too. So if you have an adult and a child who actually have similar temperament traits, like you were saying, who are both feisty or who are both frustrated easily, that's going to create some conflict in the classroom. So I think it is, it's great to understand temperament in children 
so you can know what your approach might be and how your approach to things might look different according to a child's, you know, different children's temperaments. But it is also so important for us to know our own temperament traits. Are we easily frustrated? Maybe I am more rigid than I really <laughs> than I really am, right? Maybe I'm I'm not as flexible as I thought I was. So I think that can help a great deal when it comes to okay, I need to acknowledge how I am feeling right now. Can I take a deep breath and address, you know, this, this challenging behavior? Or do I need to take a minute and self-regulate myself first? Thank you, Megan. Every word has been so important and necessary for our teachers. So we're going to leave them processing all of this information and giving you a task, teachers out there to practice. We don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. Just practice and you're going to get to, to a better point of, let's say, de-escalation. Maybe. Anything else, Megan, that you want to share with us before we close this episode? I hope that your listeners take this and I hope they had a moment where they heard a takeaway. I hope they can take something away from this podcast and bring it to their classroom and try it out, try it on, adjust if they need to. And I just want to acknowledge how important they are, how important your job is. Thank you for saying that. You are important, teachers out there, each one of you. So thank you, Megan. Again, you're so generous with your time and with your expertise. And you listeners can find this episode and the transcript at teachstone.com slash podcasts. And I want to thank you, Architects of the Mind, for sharing your love and wisdom with the children of the world and for being here to add to your box of wonders. See you next time. Bye-bye.